Welcome to All Points In Between, the travel podcast that goes out with mad dogs in the midday sun. This week, I've invited on a guest to share some travel stories about a place that I don't really know that much about. It's something I'm looking to do a bit more often with this show. So if you have a story that you want to share or you have some advice on a place that's a bit more off the beaten track, then you can get in touch with us through Twitter at AllPointsCast or by email at allpointspod at gmail.com. I'm looking forward to doing these guest episodes and hopefully be able to do more of them in the future. Our guest today has spent time living in the country that she's going to be talking about and will be able to teach me quite a lot about things to see, what to do, particularly how living in the country really differs from just travelling there. My guest today is Lou Henwood, also known as the Singing Zookeeper. Hi, Martin. <laughs> Thank you for having me on the on the <laughs> podcast. Um, yes, you brought something up in the introduction about how it's different when you live somewhere in comparison to just traveling somewhere. And the country I used to live in was the Philippines. And I uh, made a disastrous investment, but I don't know whether you've ever heard the phrase <laughs> that sometimes out of big mistakes come beautiful gifts. I ended up with a beautiful gift because I invested in uh, property over there and it all went a bit pear-shaped. And I ended up going backwards and forwards as, almost as a holiday maker to go and check out the property and, and was there, you know, with my sort of cocktails at five o'clock in the evening and mm -hmm. my three-course meals and so on. And it's a stunningly beautiful place. It's breathtakingly beautiful. And after a few visits, I decided uh, that I wanted to live there. I'd had uh, made a lot of friends, Filipino friends, as well as expat friends who lived over there. And a job opportunity came up for me and I jumped at the chance. I absolutely jumped at the chance. And it's very, very different when you live somewhere. Very it, different indeed. I, it sure is. I've, I've spent a bit of time living in quite a few different countries and, yeah, it does make a huge difference between that and just being in a place for a few weeks and moving on, which tends to be a lot more of what I do these days. So you mentioned this was a little while ago. When when was it that you went out there to live? I went out in 2013. My first visit was in 2008, and I went every year up until the, the um, 2013 when I actually physically moved over there. And this was to do with the property largely that drew you in at the time? The, a combination of the two. The, the property investment was going pear-shaped. Basically, the English investors have been conned, uh, and I don't want to go into the politics of that because I think <laughs> it's still going on as a legal battle. I'm not 100% sure. Oh, wow, but that's a long job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. But as a consequence, I'd made a lot of friends out there, um, including one phenomenal businesswoman who was in the leisure industry. So I spoke to her about moving out there and she said, yeah, yeah, I'll find you a job. And basically, I moved on from the job that I was given. And I had an inkling that this this job that I moved into was available before I went. And I was charged with setting up the first interactive living museum in the Philippines. And it was a community project to create jobs for people on the mainland. The, the, the island I lived on in originally was Boracay, which is their Ibiza. It's their party island. There's no trace of the Philippines on that um, island at all. Beautiful beaches, beautiful seas, but it's water sports. It's loud music. It's restaurants. It's hotels. There's no Filipino culture there as such. 
So the, the tourists who went into the island of Boracay didn't witness Filipino culture at all. And also every single tourist who went to Boracay has to go through the mainland, which is Malay or um, Aklan, but Malay. They'd have to come into the mainland. But the people on the mainland didn't benefit from the money that was going into Boracay. So for me to create a, an attraction to get people off this big tourist island into the mainland to put money into the pockets of the rural people, the people who are actually farming the land, was an absolute dream for me to actually give something back because the island, you know, I've, I've been there and I'd loved it so much. I wanted to give something back. So we were providing jobs for the elders. We were providing jobs for kids who were coming out of school really with no prospects. We were providing jobs for local farmers as well because we were using their produce uh, and so on. So we were creating a little um, marketplace for these people to create their own crafts that they could sell in our gift shop. So for me, that lit me up. I think that sounds like a really good project to be able to build up a bit of wider community resilience. So what did the museum actually include like what was what was the draw for people to come and visit really to to demonstrate filipino culture and in that area in malai um we ha we we went back to about the 1930s because there was no written history there was no written history at all of that area so we went back to about the 1930s because i was taking the information from the elders from the uh, lolas of the area and the and the um lolas and the uh, craftsmen and people who could tell the stories that had come down through their family so it was a basically an agricultural museum which sounds really boring but it wasn't because every hmm. single tourist who went in there physically did what the people were doing in the museum so we dressed them up at the gate in traditional costume put them gave them a sadok which is a big uh, filipino hat that you wear in the rice paddies you'd see how right down to basics how they pooed right down to basics how they would set up a latrine how they would shower not that we saw anybody showering but they would you know we would talk them I'd, through I'd, it. I'd hope not yeah they would have showered but we you know all the natural materials that they would use for soap for instance a certain type of leaf that they would use mixed with coconut instead of soap they didn't have soap um they'd go into the farmhouse they'd see um tobacco being rolled so stogies were being made um, you'd see babies in a duyen, and quite often we, we'd end up with no baby. So we'd have little um, Rolen, who was four, used to sleep in it as well. He was great for Oh, okay. <laughs> He'd stick his head out of the duyen and uh, surprise everybody. Then threw into the kitchen so they could see that people were cooking on what, in the Philippines, they're called a dirty kitchen, which means it's a fire. You know, it's not yeah. a, a cooker as such. Then you go into the rice farm, the, the actual area where the rice is being planted uh, and you'd see the carabao um, pulling a ligis, which is made in the old fashioned way out of bamboo. And the, the guests could ride on the ligis or they could ride on the carabao and they could pick rice and they could harvest rice. And most people are quite squeamish about um, planting rice because it's at least knee deep in mud. And I must admit, I was squeamish to start off with, but of course the temperature over there heats the mud up and it is so yeah. soft. It's actually a gorgeous experience to get into this mud and plant rice. So it's quite difficult to get a tourist out once they're in because it's such a nice, <laughs> nice sensation. I can imagine it's pretty good for the skin as well. 
Um, I would imagine so. It was we did think about creating a spa using mud. It, we never got round to it, but it was something very much on the agenda because it's very very soft. The elders would sit down and, and create crafts, so a lot of basket weaving, um, creating roofing materials. So they could actually physically see these people doing the work of the stuff that they see around or the stuff they could buy in the gift shop. And the elders were initially taught to just just hum underneath your breath as if you're working. As you, nah, 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 nah. And they took it upon themselves to make it their own. And I they would get up and sing at the very end of the tour, Adios, which is a, a Filipino farewell song about the, the Virgin Mary. And most of the female tourists who went to see would leave in tears because it was so, you can hear my heart yeah, actually yeah. moving just at the memory <laughs> of it. These, yeah. The elders were, for me, mind-blowingly inspirational. And I've still got a big chunk of my heart there, a huge mm. chunk of my heart. I love the place. Yeah, yeah. How how did that initial engagement with the community begin? Because I can imagine when you're setting up something like this, it's it's a matter of treading a fine line, really, between what will be interesting for tourists, but also what's going to be culturally sensitive for people living there. How how did that initial engagement work? Well, I came from the prospect of, firstly, you remember, I didn't speak the language, didn't know anything about rice farming and knew nothing about their culture. So they picked on the right person. They did, actually. But I came from the mindset of a tourist. What is it that I want to see? If I've never been here before, what is it that I want to see? I also live very close to the, or I used to live very close to the Black Country Living Museum. So that was uh, set up in Dudley. So it was sort of... <laughs> A very minute version of that. So what is it that I wanted to see? Then I'd have meetings with uh, the barangay captains. The barangay captain is the village chief, in effect. Okay. Um, and I'd have meetings with the elders. And between us, we would draw up a plan. And then it's my job to plan out how a tourist is going to take in this information as they're going around. Yeah. Then the... Um, but the, the place was a greenfield site when I first got there. There was nothing there at all. So I had to oversee the building, which was um, interesting in itself because my foreman used to fall out with the builders frequently and leave me on site on my own trying to get things done. So I got very good at mime and some of them spoke a smattering of English. So between us, we pulled it together. But everything was done with native materials, anybody, any areas that we were unsure of, we'd bring somebody else in and, you know, of, of local and discuss with them. So it was very, very collaborative and it's still going. So your listeners can look it up. It's called Motag Living Museum and it's still getting five stars on TripAdvisor. And it's it's an amazing thing to be able to leave behind that as well. You mentioned that you didn't speak the language when you arrived. Where where that is in the Philippines, is the main language Spanish or is the a local dialect that you need to be learning for that? It's called Tagalog. Um, and there's a lot of Spanish in Tagalog. And that's the, that's the universal language of the Philippines. But <laughs> I would learn something in Tagalog and the elders would very quickly pull me up on it and teach it to me in Malinon. <laughs> which is the language which is in that area. So they've got a lot of different languages across 
um, the different islands. So um, Cebuano, for instance, is spoken in Cebu. Malinon is spoken in Malay, you know, and, and so on. And the, the, the words differ. So Dalawa and Daiwa is the same word for two. So yeah. you have to have your ears tuned in and just go with it. Well, for me, go with the sound of it. Um, there's lots of and lots of difficult words. So they used to really, excuse me, but take the piss out of me because they, <laughs> they'd have, they take out a vowel of a word and put a G-N in it. So there was a, a the word for a certain type of chest, a box, a chest, is karao. And it comes as okay. a ah, and it, there's no vowels in that word at all. So for me to look at it and then try and speak it, they would be crying with laughter because that <laughs> ah, ah sound, it, and I still don't sound it properly, but that ah, sound for them, me doing it, is hilarious. But the other beauty of that country, though, is they have an American education system. Not that that's beautiful, but the fact is they have to learn English. So the majority of people, if they're not beautifully spoken in English, which most of them are, they've got a smattering of English. So you can get by um, if you're using that language. Very, very few people, um, even in a remote rural area, will have hello, here, sit, food, you know, that they can make themselves known in English. That sounds dreadful because yeah. I was the incomer, but they they could get um they could get me to understand. My my line on got better as the years went on and I started to understand what was being said more so than being spoken. So communication wasn't too difficult. Mime, I'm just very, very good at mime now. Like you say, particularly with this being a travel show, it's perhaps a bit of a selling point for English speaking listeners to know that the Philippines is, even though it is this vast, very diverse country over hundreds or even thousands of islands. Thousands. Yeah. That, that by and large you are able to get by in English, which is is helpful, particularly if you are just over there to travel. Yeah, it certainly seems as though any any sense of culture shock that you did get out there was not necessarily negative as such. It was more just a bit un unusual in terms of the differences to start, rather than being a sense of, oh, I don't like this. I think the cultural cultural shock I had uh, was there were just some weird things going on that I had this prissy Western mindset. Oh, they shouldn't be doing this and they shouldn't be doing that. And <laughs> a long time it took me a long time for that penny to drop. So, for instance, the workers where I was living when I first moved there would start work at six o'clock in the morning. Well, of course, I didn't want to work wake up at six o'clock in the morning, so that used to cheese me off. Um, the local transport is a tricycle. So you've got a motorbike with a big sidecar on the side of it, and it takes up to about eight people, sometimes a lot more, I will add, but <laughs> theoretically eight people. So my attitude would be, if I stick my hand out, they'll stop. Well, no, they slow down so you can run after them and jump on oh, them. and jump on it, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't know that. I just got really cheesed off about it. And things like... Um, Etiquette for us, I'm expecting or I was expecting them to have the same thing. You'd have single motorbikes, so they're a lot quicker than tricycles. And you get from A to B and you'd have one or two passengers on a single motorbike. You could, again, get up to eight people on a motorcycle, but that's by the by. 
But as soon as I got on a motorcycle, they'd slow down. Bike ma'am, and I know it's cheaper and it's quicker. Yes, please, get on. Uh, as soon as I get on there, ma'am, are you married? Now, for me, that's an affront. It's a real sort of um, that made me wonder about, about my safety, made me wonder where, where the question was coming from. It's just something a guy wouldn't naturally just ask somebody unless they were in a bar and they're in a chatting up mood or, or what have you. But for me, I got used to it. Um, it's just it was kind of more thing. just general small yeah. talk, cultural, really. Like, yeah, have you eaten? Um, so I used to joke with them and I'd suss out what the driver was like because I'd say, oh, no, I killed him. And I'd <laughs> wait for their response. Now, either they tensed up, I know I'd get there quicker, or if they were laughing, I'm like, okay, this is going to be a good good um, uh, bike ride. Along with that, did you travel, did you have the opportunity to travel a lot more widely in the Philippines, go see other places? I didn't get around as much as I would have liked to. Um the I went Manila is a nightmare. It, it is just I wouldn't recommend Manila to anybody. Now I've got friends in Manila and they'll probably tell me off. But uh, as a tourist, Manila isn't a place you want to hang around. It's a really dense, really busy city. Um, yeah. the, you know, the, cap get, the capital, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. If you want to get five miles, it might take you three hours in a car. So I, would, I wouldn't go there. I, next time I go to the Philippines, I will be going to Manila because I've got friends there. But that's by the by. As a tourist, it's going to take a lot of time where you're not going to see that much nice stuff. Cebu is a beautiful city. Uh, and you can fly into Cebu. Um, and I spent a bit of time in Cebu, um, liked it. It's got a very warm, again, this this lovely, warm, open um, nature about the people there. Then um, if you go to further down in Cebu, you go to a place called Oslob. You can dive with the whale sharks, which we went to do. Oh, wow. A lot of people... It, it was amazing. It's something I, I really wanted to do. And I, I did it, luckily, with my daughter. And a lot of people go, oh, you shouldn't be doing it because it's bad for the whale sharks. But this is a tradition that's come about. It started about 50 years ago where the fishermen were baiting the whale sharks to keep them out of their fishing areas. Because when you've got a whale shark, you're trying to, they're only little nets and you've got a whale shark on top of your little net. We're not talking trawlers. We're talking about hand thrown nets. You've got a whale shark on top of it. You're not going to catch a lot of fish. So they used to bait a circle so that they could keep the whale sharks out in this circle and then fish in the middle. Well, somebody picked on the, the idea that it would be good for tourists to go and see. So now it's a really big tourist attraction. And there's a lot of people throwing up their arms saying it's bad and blah, blah, blah. But actually on site, they've got marine biologists studying the activity. And these whale sharks come in totally voluntarily. You're not allowed to touch them. You can go in the water with them, but you're not allowed to touch them. Um, and they just rock up every morning at the same time. They're used to it. And they're also the babies. They're the younger sharks. So you're not going to get a full-sized adult in this place. Um, Dumaguete, Dumaguete itself is uh, not – there's not that much there. But if you're a diver, it's a brilliant place to go because just off Dumaguete is a place called Apo, Apo Island, which is the Philippines Marine Reserve. And it is pristine. It's beautiful. And it, I didn't actually dive there. My daughter and I um, snorkeled. And I think within mm. the first 10 minutes of snorkeling, we saw 11 turtles. Yeah, you don't really need the scuba gear if no. you can see all that with a snorkel, no. do you? 
No, and it's less damaging, to be perfectly honest. You, you're floating just about on, on the top. And there's an area in there that they call the Champagne Garden because um, the Philippines is predominantly volcanic. So there's some sort of seepage of gas that's coming up through this coral area. Oh, it's so pretty. It does look like you're swimming in a glass of champagne. It's beautiful. So Apple Island, and then you've got... Um, I'm a, I'm a diver, so we tended to go places where we could dive. Um, Mobile is where they do the sardine rush at certain times of year. All of the sardines come into this area, and you can go and dive with those, which is, again, it's quite an experience to go in amongst, you know, massive. I couldn't tell you how many tons of sardines, but it's quite a, uh, an experience. But the places I want to go uh, and haven't been is Bohol, because they've got the uh, tiny tarsiers in Bohol and they've got what they call the chocolate mountains. They've got these strange sort of hill shapes that are chocolate coloured um, and nobody quite knows what they are or how they got there. And then the other place I want to get to is Palawan. And I, again, I never managed to get there, but those are two islands. Next time I go back, that's where I'm going to Bohol and Palawan. Oh, it's quite a good itinerary that for people to work their way around. Certainly, well, you, you can't keep miss people it. busy. You can't miss out Malai. You can't miss out Motaglivi Museum in Malai. And you can't miss out um, Barakai. Barakai is very much the mecca of the tourists. But for the experience of going, actually, because the beaches are stunning. But there are places that have um, wonderful beaches that aren't populated. There's a place called um, Bulalakau, which if you go into Malai, you can get what they call a fast cat. Um, so you could put your car on this catamaran, which would normally take on a boat eight hours, and you do it in two on this really fast catamaran. And there's very little there. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. I think they've got one hotel, or they did have one hotel. They got one shack that had stuff to eat in, which was by the landing, uh, by the jetty. They had a little town, but the rest of it was unspoiled. There was no hotels there, nothing on the beaches. It was just gorgeous. There's so much. You you could spend a lifetime and not see all of, all of the islands there. For if people were considering staying in the Philippines longer term, a little bit like you did, if you could just give them one piece of advice, what would that be? Stop being Western. Just stop being Western. Don't don't impose your idea of how things should happen on them uh, because they do things in their own way. And if you get upset about it, that's your problem. Yeah, definitely. I think particularly if you are there, well, essentially as a guest in their country, there is an onus on people moving there to, like you say, um, I don't know if the term assimilations correct really because that has some quite negative connotations but certainly engage with culture and get involved and yeah not impose your own values yeah absolutely there's a that was one of the mistakes that the expats sort of seem to have over there and again it sounds like i'm painting a whole whole community of expats with the same brush i'm not at all but a lot of the expats had an idea that no they should be doing things this way and they should be doing things that way and would get very upset if it didn't happen but actually if you can let that go it's just joyful it's really really and it's so freeing yeah it's so freeing the other bit that i did want to talk to you about was when you came back to the uk so 
quite a lot of people when they've been away overseas for a long period get this sense of reverse culture shock and I was wondering if you experienced anything like that when you came home. Yes very much so. For a long time when I was over in the Philippines I was looking back at the UK with wine coloured glasses because uh, there's a lot of corruption that goes on in the Philippines um, and you know it was very 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 visible very very visible and um, I would get huffy and puffy about that. I came back to the UK but because I'd had a totally different experience and a totally different culture I could see the corruption that was going on over here that's covert that's not so visible so my ideals of the UK I'm like oh okay so it's actually no different it's no different at all but actually in the UK they they from my perspective, purely from my perspective, you've got to bear in mind, I came back from um, the Philippines, age of 56, two O-levels to my name, um, lots and lots and lots of experience, but no degrees and an age. Could I get a job? Absolutely not. Not at the level that I can work at, because I've been in managerial jobs before, project management and what have you. But because I hadn't got the qualifications, uh, because I was 56, no way. And, the, you know, in this country, they tend to, you have to be pigeonholed. You have to fit in certain molds. And I had this feeling of not belonging again. If you remember me right at the top of the program saying I let it go. And it was so freeing over there because I didn't belong. And then coming back over here, realizing that I was trying to put on my old clothes, if you know what I mean, my old constrictions, my old um, all of those old worries came up and I, I got very depressed for quite a long time um, and then sat back and reversed engineered it. It's like, OK, why am I depressed now? Because it wasn't obvious to me at the time. Why am I depressed now? And I reversed engineered it back to this point where it's like, aha, I'm trying to belong. Whereas in the Philippines, I didn't belong and I totally accepted it. And I really looked at all I'd learned in the Philippines and what brought me freedom over there that wasn't I wasn't able to do over here and was basically dissecting it. Why? Also, you've got to bear in mind, since I was a very tiny child, I'd struggled with depression all the way through my life. And I um, sought out all means to try and rid myself of depression. So I'd go from job to job. I'd go from therapist to therapist. I went all over the place and went to the Philippines, I think, in a way to run away from myself. Um, interestingly enough, I was there to meet me when I got there. So <laughs> exactly the same situation. It's, it is funny how that keeps happening. <laughs> yes, you to meet yourself there. Hello, old friend. So I, I fell into this depression. Um, but realized for a lot of the time that I was over there, I wasn't depressed because I had this sense of freedom. I had this sense of I could be who I wanted to be. I didn't put on any masks. I didn't pretend to be anything I wasn't. So then I thought, well, if I know that now, I had uh, I, I got to the point where I started taking my masks off, and worked out how to do it in this culture and became really blissed out, loved it. I thought if I can do that over here, I can teach other people how to do that because I recognized all of the whole horrible old depression creeping back on me so um, I went away and studied I'm a mindfulness therapist I'm an NLP master practitioner I'm a hypnotherapist I do quantum healing and um, I've just finished training with Jamie Cato who um, was with um, 
Faithless. I don't know whether you remember the the band. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, of course. But yeah, yeah. he um, he sparked the idea actually because I went to one of his workshops, and his workshop is made up of games. But all of these games are designed to get things that we try and hide. So, um, you know, I'm not good enough. So you go out and prove to the world that you are good enough. That's a very banal example. But for instance, all of this shadow stuff that we try and hide from the rest of the world to get it up into the surface so that we can see it and then not take it seriously. So he inspired me to go off and train and come full circle. I've trained with him. So I'm one of his teachers now. And I do rapid release sessions with people on Zoom. Um, I very rarely um, do one-to-ones in in person unless they're on a retreat. I've got retreats coming up in September. One of the other things that I did want to ask is the singing zookeeper. Where does that come from? Right. When I was a little one, uh, bear in mind that what I do now is dealing predominantly with um restrictions that have been put in as as children and when I, I thought back and thought well when I was a kid what did I want to be and there was two things I absolutely loved one you'd have to be very old to remember Johnny Morris used to have a program called Animal Magic where he was a zookeeper and I loved it black and white uh and the other thing I loved doing was singing so as a three yeah. or four year old people would say well, what do you want to be when you grow up singing zookeeper oh of but course What I didn't realise was when I grew up was I'd be managing the menagerie in my mind because we've all got zoos in here that take over and tell us fibs. And Jamie Catto calls it head fuck FM. I don't know if I can say that. (laughs) Oh, I I wouldn't worry too much about that. (laughs) Okay, All right. But uh, so we've all got like a, a menagerie of noise that goes on in here. And most of it is absolutely and utterly worthless, useless and not worth listening to. But we do. So my job is to teach people how to unhook themselves from the menagerie of the mind or the zoo of the mind. So, yeah, I grew up to be a singing zookeeper, but not as I imagined it when I was a three year old. Oh, well, it's a certainly a different approach to getting there. So that was pretty much everything I wanted to cover. Thank you. Thank you very much for joining me, Lou. I've certainly learned a lot more about the Philippines than I knew earlier on this evening. It's it's a country that I've always overlooked a little bit because it is it's in that Southeast Asia area, but it is just a little bit off the usual backpacking trail in that bit of the world. So I've really enjoyed hearing a little bit more about life in the country, good spots to visit. Is there anything else that you'd like to promote to listeners anywhere where people can get in touch with you if they have any questions or want to know more about you and the things you do absolutely um if you go to my website which is strangely enough the singing zookeeper.com uh you could book a free call with me or you could ping me an email the singing zookeeper at gmail.com uh look out for me on tiktok because i do um oh, short okay. videos on tiktok so self-help videos get, on tiktok getting down with my face getting down with go kids on the tiktok no, there's loads of us old old folk on there. Loads of them. I've got ninety eight thousand followers, so it isn't all just about kids. Oh wait, so. yeah. Well, that's <laughs> more more than this podcast, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I um I think it's a lovely platform because it's nice and balanced. It doesn't feed you down a tunnel of only this. 
it gives you a whole variety of things, but you don't choose what comes up on your feed. And I like TikTok because of that. Whereas something like, uh, I don't want to knock any other platforms, but something like Facebook or Instagram, if you are into a political leaning, that's what you will see. If you are, I don't know, just about makeup, that's all you will see. But with TikTok, you get everything um, across your path. So you've got an opportunity to widen your horizons on that, including the dance stuff that they do, which I do scroll on from. There's a lot of AI going on at the moment on there, but I just like it because it's balanced. And of course, I like it because I've got a lot of followers on there. <laughs> so. yeah. Oh, there you go. If anybody wants to get in touch with us on this podcast, you can do that either on our Twitter at the moment, which is at All Points Cast. Or on Gmail, you can just send me a message and hurl general abuse at allpointspod at gmail.com. And potentially also on TikTok if it's got quite such following. Um, I'm obviously very much out of the loop on that, so you never know. Maybe TikTok as well. <laughs> Thank you very much. And we will speak to you again in a couple of weeks with another episode. Bye.